Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It's not nice to dislike people because they're perfect, but sometimes you kind of can't help yourself. And this is the story of two perfect and super popular people and how they were dethroned. It happened in the mid-1950s, but even before it did, there were already rumblings that change was afoot. A young woman named Eloise, who weirdly lived at the Plaza Hotel in New York, she'd already begun to challenge the popularity of these two perfect people. But the big event is in 1954 because this is when he takes on Dick and Jane. That's author Brian J. Jones, who has written about George Lucas, Jim Henson, and most recently, Dr. Seuss. And Dick and Jane it was the primary mechanism by which every child was taught to read before then. Uh, it was a reading primer. It was put on their desk. It had a rigid pedagogy behind it of approved vocabulary words. And these books were terrible. And they were uninteresting. And Dick and Jane led lives of quiet desperation that didn't look like lives other kids were living. And somebody finally said, you know, I wish Dr. Seuss would just draw one of these. And it turned out what happened that Dr. Seuss took on the challenge to write and draw one of these. But in order to really dethrone Dick and Jane, Dr. Seuss, who wasn't a doctor and whose real name was Theodore Geisel, well, in order to really get rid of them, he was going to have to jump through a major hurdle. Write a book using a very specific educator-approved reading list, and he could not deviate from it. That's the book that becomes The Cat in the Hat. Um, And it takes him a long time to do it. But once that book comes out, Dick and Jane are done. Dr. Seussway said the rest of his life, one of his proudest accomplishments was he was one that sort of swept Dick and Jane out the door of the classroom. But that's the moment when when reading, when people realize, okay, reading uh, for kids can be fun. It doesn't have to be boring. It can be exciting. You can actually write books they want to read and that their parents want to read, which was the real trick Dr. Seuss pulled off. Parents wanted to read those books as much as the kids did. Even though we might think of the 1950s as a time of conformity, it was also a time when the seeds of something else were being planted. Jones is the author of Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, and the Making of an American Imagination. And he says Dr. Seuss was thrilled to start breaking out of the mold. Well, the other thing you have to remember is, you know, comic books started in around 1938 is when they started to get big. So that was that was their competition. And Dr. Seuss knew that and appreciated that. He, he put together a, writer, a writer's workshop, a seminar in 1949 on how you write children's books. It was a really important moment in his career because it's the first time he sort of had to sit down and think about how he worked and what his objectives were and what his goals were. But he talks a lot about, you know, comic books are, are stealing kids from you. Hmm. He wasn't necessarily a fan of comics, but he said, you know, if, even if they're bad, you need to read them because they're holding the interest of kids. And that's what you've got to do now. Hmm. Uh, so that was his task moving forward was find something that held their attention. I, I wonder, I mean, you write a little bit about like TV also kind of shaping how um, books started to be written and, and how Theodore Geisel, with, you know, Dr. Seuss, was writing um, books. And I just wonder if you can talk about like what was on in those early days and how did the pace of TV sort of change the equation for kids and their books? Yeah, the, the 50s is a time of really rapid growth and exper- even experimental change in television because it's such a new technology. And TV's kind of, it's almost like the early days of cable. Remember, we would kind of shotgun through every channel because there was so much weird stuff on. TV was kind of that way throughout the 50s. Lots of variety shows, lots of comedies, lots of experimental TV when people didn't quite know what to put on. Shows were short. But the one thing Dr. said about TVs, he says, you know, kids in front of the TV 
say what you will about TV, they're getting to see, you know, the news and they're getting to see stories about rocket ships and cowboys. And there's a whole lot more information now. They have a lot more information at age six than their grandparents did at age 90. And it's due primarily to TV being in the house and projecting that information into every living room where every kid is seeing it. Let's go back for a second, um, because even though we think of Theodore Geisel as like the emblematic children's writer now, you can't get much more classic than Dr. Seuss. It was not sort of always fated that he was going to be a children's book writer, right? That kind of came along, I I don't know, would you say late-ish in his career? Yeah, it's what I find so interesting about him is, you know, he the reason we call the I called the book Becoming Dr. Seuss is because throughout his career there's a number of times first of all he could have gotten derailed from becoming Dr. Seuss, but he's always learning something along the way that they then applies to the books that he writes that we then think of basically as Dr. Seuss books. The first arc of his career is he has a very successful career as an advertising man. He's sort of the, you know, the Don Draper of the 1920s mm. 1930s, and he's got this gigantic ad campaign for bug spray that would make <laughs> Don Draper positively Grinch Green with Envy. So he's this very successful ad man. And the reason he gets into kids' books is not because he feels a need to tell compelling great stories for kids. That comes later. But it's because his he's got a very restrictive contract with Standard Oil, who produced the Flit Bug Spray, that prohibits him from doing a lot of other outside work. But one of the outside jobs he can take is he can write and draw children's books. And that gets him into kids' books because there's money on the table, essentially. I I found that really fascinating about him because this this was just a way forward because it was another creative outlet that he was permitted to pursue under his contract. So I wonder how much um, Hollywood impacted him, because at one point in his military career, he ends up in the unit of this guy named Frank Capra, who a lot of people know because he directed It's a Wonderful Life. And he directed a whole bunch of other movies, too. Um, But Capra was basically had been enlisted to um, do propaganda as many people in Hollywood were doing uh, for the United States uh, to get Americans to support the war effort. And Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, was part of this. I wonder how you think how that experience shaped him and how Hollywood shaped him. Well, you have to you have to sort of separate Capra from Hollywood because he had after the army. We'll talk about that a little bit. He had bad experiences with Hollywood per se. Hmm. Uh, But Capra is really important to him. Uh, Capra is his commanding officer in the Army Signal Corps. He enlists in the Army at age 39. He doesn't actually get stationed in Europe. He gets stationed in Hollywood, producing propaganda for the Signal Corps under under Capra. And he's tasked with doing um, training films for, you know, there were a lot of people in the military, a lot of enlisted soldiers, young men, who couldn't read. And so he was brought in to, you know, train them by putting together animated cartoons that taught them you know, how to not blow themselves up. <laughs> Most of his cartoons teach by example, usually by showing you how not to do it. It's called Private Snafu. Hmm. And so he's in charge of these cartoons, but Capra's the one who teaches him, you know, how to how to write a script that's really tight. You know, he would bring his scripts into Capra, and Capra would say, okay, I'm going to go through these with a the blue pencil, and I'm going to underline everything in this script that advances your plot. And if I give this back to you and there's no blue in it or very little blue, you have you have a problem. You need to go back and rework this. So Capra really teaches him the the beauty of conciseness, of making every word count, which, again, is something moving forward. Dr. Seuss is really good at, right, right. Uh, you know, and, and making the last word of a sentence the funniest. And, you know, he really makes every he really makes every word count. Capra teaches him that. The other thing he learns from Capra and also as, as a sidebar from Chuck Jones, who hasn't yet done, you know, the Wiley e. Coyote cartoons or any of the classic uh, Looney Tunes cartoons yet, but he's this up-and-coming animator over at Warner 
who's a civilian who's working on the private snafu cartoons with Dr. Seuss, they sort of teach him how to, how to storyboard. And they say, you know, draw, type out your script and put your drawings on that page and then pin the pages up on the wall and look at them and move them around and decide, is the story working? And is it advancing your plot? And if it, it needs to go someplace else, what you have at the beginning needs to go to the end or the joke falls flat here. So they teach him a process that goes a long way as well. This is the process by which he would write every book moving forward from that. It was very useful to him. So those are two really important people in his life who he runs into in the Signal Corps, who, uh, you know, Capra and Chuck Jones. But you have to separate that a little bit from Hollywood because after he's in the military, he decides to become a screenwriter in Hollywood and just hates screenwriting because Mm. it's writing by committee. And that really Mm. makes him insane. Mm. So when you then look at things like Green Eggs and Ham or Cat in the Hat, and you look at the finished products years later, do you feel like you see in those um, that training that he got from one of the, I mean, Frank Capra, one of the most important directors out there, Chuck Jones, like, as you say, incredible animator. I mean, do you feel like you see bits of the movies and television in those books? Well, take a book like Cat in the Hat. Okay. There's not a word wasted in there, for, for one thing. First of all, because he's working with the, the confines of that very restrictive word list. Um, but he makes every word in there count, and he's trying. he carries it forward by, um, by pure rhythm at times. And he's tr- sometimes he even rhymes a word with itself just to keep the verse and the rhyme going. And there's parts in there when the cat starts juggling a number of objects because it's right. the way he could get all those words on the page, okay. all those words from his word list on the page. But, but also, if you look at the way it's drawn, the cat is always in motion. His feet are very rarely on the ground from panel to panel. The hat, half the time, is is reflecting the cat's mood. Or it's, you know, that the hat is, is standing upright when the cat's happy, and it's down when at the very end of the story when he thinks he's in trouble. So, you know, he, he's, he's got a lot of lessons from both, both Chuck Jones and Frank Capra going on in just that book. Hmm. Uh, it's a really good example of him sort of firing on all pistons at that point. Even the use of his color in that book. You think about it, there's not very many colors in the cat in the right, hat. It's primarily no. red and then black. And he's making his blacks do a lot of work, which, again, is something animators teach you. Well, and it's also kind of an interesting thing because, you know, we think of books as books. But in some ways, you're saying, like, a lot of the new technology that was around, which is to say film and television, was mm-hmm. informing this new thing that people thought of as, like, just a book. But, in fact, it was a synthesis of, like, things that people had learned from doing from being part of new technologies. Yeah, it, it, it really is evolve or die, I right, think, at that right. point. You know? And then, you know, again, he's looking at something like comic books and TV, and he's saying, okay, you can treat these guys as the enemy. Maybe they're making kids illiterate, maybe they're not. But there's things you can learn from them. And again, in comic books, watch watch what they're doing to hold kids' interest and watch how exciting they are and, and watch how TV is throwing information at them. And, you know, you can you can control that message, but watch what they're doing and learn from those things. So he wasn't he wasn't the person who said comic books are the end of kids' literacy and sort of shut the door on them. He said, you can actually learn from this. Okay, we're going to hold it there for just a minute. And when we come back, Dr. Seuss gets involved in politics and then has to figure out how to handle the growing fame of the characters he's created. If you want to hear, you want to share this whole conversation, we're on Apple Podcasts. You can also head over to our website, innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub, back right after this. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 
39 and a half foot pole. You're a vile one, Mr. Grinch. You have termites in your smile. Any good story, of course, has twists and turns. And the story of Theodore Geisel is no different. He wrote for humor magazines, became an ad man and a Hollywood screenwriter. But as politics became more volatile and deadly in the late 1930s, world events changed his life and turned him in to a political cartoonist. And you have to remember, he was a, a German-American. His grandfather his, his grandfather had actually emigrated from Germany. So he had family over there, and he had been in Germany in 1936 and had seen Hitler in action and was really, really nervous about this guy and was nervous about Nazi propaganda and what it was doing to their children. And he'd actually seen Mussolini and thought he was a thug. So, so there's a lot of his progressive politics on display in those, in those cartoons. There's some really, um, you know, shocking stuff. You know, there's pictures of people being... You know, hanging from trees, being victims of the atrocities that Hitler's committing that nobody was really talking about. Brian J. Jones is the author, most recently, of Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, and the Making of an American Imagination. And he says, as a cartoonist, Geisel didn't shy away from caricaturing those he really didn't like. He was really pushing for American preparedness, and he really had it in for Charles Lindbergh. He didn't like Charles Lindbergh and his talk of America first and America isolationism. He knew Lindbergh was anti-Semitic and, and really went after him and hit him really hard, called him out. And, you know, he, he drew an ostrich to represent Lindbergh and the isolationists with their heads in the sand. Eventually, Geisel enlisted, though he served his tour of duty in Hollywood, helping to make American propaganda and guides for soldiers. And all during this time, Theodore Seuss Geisel was writing kids' books, books with the same sort of supernatural-looking people and animals that populated his political cartoons. He started in the late 1930s, but it wasn't till about 20 years later that anyone paid any attention. His books weren't really selling well enough for him to do it full-time, to do it for a living. Hmm. So on and through the 1940s and into the 1950s, he's still writing a book a year, a book maybe every two years, but he's still taking advertising gigs. And there's times he's still dabbling in those Hollywood movie scripts because he, he really believes he can make a lot of money there. It's the cat in the hat that actually changes everything because when that book comes out and when that book challenges Dick and Jane you know, by giving them an exciting reading primer... That's his first million-selling book, and that comes at age 50, 53 for him, wow. very very late in his career, if you will. So that's the moment that he truly becomes Dr. Seuss because he's got his big hit now. Now he can do this full-time. Oddly and interestingly, the other book he's got on the wall at the same time he's doing Cat in the Hat is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now, The Grinch isn't restricted by the, the word list. It's, it's a different kind of book. But to have these two blockbusters in one year, you talk about lightning in a bottle. And that's the moment he can move forward and really just start doing this full time. And he's doing very well with it and can take on uh, the beginner books imprint, for example, and edit other children's writers like Stan and Jan Berenstain. Oh, that's the Berenstain Bears, right? Berenstain Bears, yeah. So, okay, okay. So, yeah, so he's overseeing other writers then at that point, too, as, as, as well as producing his own books. So how did the word limit on Cat in the Hat, how many words does he use, and how did that, like, come to be? <laughs> so uh, 
1954, uh, John Hersey in the Pages of Life magazine was doing what we still tend to do about every eight or ten years or so. We wring our hands and wonder what's wrong with kids today. Uh, you know, why, why can't they read? Eight or ten read? years. I think that That's happens right. like eight or ten, <laughs> every, every eight year. or ten days. Yeah, why, you know, why are, reading, why are reading scores down? Why are test scores down? What's wrong? And Hersey's the one who says, you know, one of the biggest problems you've got is that Dick and Jane are terrible. Um, and so if, his challenge at the, in Life magazine is Dr. Seuss should be drawing one of these. But what happens is a publisher of children's books calls Dr. Seuss and says, um, I don't want you just drawing one. I want you writing one of these. But the challenge he's got is he has to use that word list. He has to use about 350 words. It's what's approved for first graders. What the challenge he's issued okay. is write me a book a first grader can't put down. Which so this is, really is like some book. sort of national, like sanctioned list for schools. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a, okay. a teacher approved, if you will, okay. list um, of words that first graders, you know, and those with beginning reading skills know should be expected to know. Um, but it's not a huge list. It's about 350 words. And, you know, there's no possessives. You can't do possessives and you can't do plurals. And, and you know, unless there's an explicitly a plural on the list, you can't just add an S to a word and say it's plural because the kid shouldn't won't know, necessarily know that. Okay. So so Dr. Seuss is, is, is told, write me a book a first grader can't put down, but you have to use this word list. So he agrees at one point just to take it home and play around with it and stares at it for about a year. Uh, saying, I wanted to write a story about a queen zebra, but the word queen wasn't on the list, and the word zebra is not on the list, so can't really go there. After about a year, at one point, he finally says, you know, I was gonna, I'm going to go through this one more time and then throw this thing out, but I'm going to look for the first two words that rhyme and see if that gives me my idea. The first two words, thank goodness, I guess, um, didn't land because we would have had the tall ball at that point. Okay. Um, but he, lands, he finally lands on cat and hat. Okay. So now he's got his subject. But it still takes him another year to write the book because, as he said, there's no, there's really not a lot of adjectives. And again, you can't make something possessive and you can't make things plural. So really, you know, it's a, it's a real struggle to work within this very limited vocabulary list. But that's how that book comes about. It's, it's, a, it's a hurled gauntlet to write a book for first graders using just their pre-approved words. Hmm. And it makes me think back to Frank Capra and, like, what are the essentials of the story here? And, like, what is catching people's attention? Don't, and don't use anything else. Right. Well, and, you know, and you talked about books like Eloise and, yeah. uh, and even Curious George, like, you know, how they were kind of bad kids. I mean, the cat in the hat, when he comes in, is sort of the Lord of Misrule here for right. a moment. Right. But he cleans the mess up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everything, everything sort of comes out in the end. And I've had some people come up to me and say, I don't think the cat in the hat actually existed. I think it was in the heads of the kids, which I think is great. I mean, people can bring their own thing to each story. So that book ends up using about 225 unique words. Okay. Um, I think it's 800 words, something long, but about 225. Then the next part of that story, sort of the punchline on it, is Bennett Cerf, the editor of Random House, you know, sort of calls him in and says, okay, smart guy, you know, you wrote a book for first graders using 225 words. I'll bet you can't write one. I'll, I'll bet you $50 you can't use 50 words or less. And that's the book that becomes Green Eggs and Ham. And uh, Dr. Seuss also said that uh, Bennett Cerf never paid him his $50 for that either. <laughs> One sort of really interesting footnote here is that while I think a lot of people think like, oh, you know, I mean, this is one of the greatest children's book authors of all time, must have been sort of testing things out on kids. I mean, maybe he was, but uh, Theodore Geisel had no children. Right. Yeah. His his wife, Helen, um, had a condition. She had her ovaries removed, which means there was something very serious going on. Uh, so they never were able to have children. Uh, of their own. Now, you'll notice uh, the book, The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Cubbins, is actually dedicated to Chrysanthemum Pearl. I think it says something like age 89 months. 
And that 89 months between uh, when Helen had her surgery and when Bartholomew Cubbins came out is very telling. So that's that's their fake child that mm. they would often use to uh, sort of in a playful way, but, you know, shut down conversations when their friends who were starting to have children would get together and doing as we those of us who have kids do, start telling stories about all the great things your kids are doing. Uh, Dr. Seuss would say, Chrysanthemum Pearl just made a 15-course meal. You know, <laughs> Chrysanthemum Pearl uh, built a boat. You know, Chrysanthemum Pearl could do anything great and do it probably better than your kid, and that would shut that conversation mm. down fairly quickly. Mm. Uh, so it was kind of a defense mechanism and sort of an in-joke as well. But no, he and his wife never had any children. Now, his second marriage, uh, he had two stepdaughters from his mm. second marriage. Mm. How do you think it sort of changed the dynamic around Theodore Geisel that he was writing in the middle of the baby boom when baby boomers were young kids. There had, I mean, this was a, obviously an event where there were just so many kids and demographically, it just plain old changed the country. I wonder if you think that that, that sort of statistical fact interacted with how he was sort of creating a new era of, you know, literature for kids. Yeah. No, it, it absolutely did. In fact, and, you know, at one point he has a meeting with his agent and and she's kind of the one who even says to him, you know, there's something going on in this country. Everybody's come. I don't think she used the word baby boom, but she she could tell something was going on, that these people had come back from World War Two and they were using the GI Bill and they were starting families. And there was this wave of children starting. So so he he knew. And, and what she also told him is, and you have a reputation. You know, so he'd already written enough kids books that he had a name out there. So it was it was his opportunity to really sort of grab this and run with it. Uh, and he knew he had an audience coming up behind him that he could write for, which I think is why it was so important to him, you know, with the cat in the hat and then books moving forward to write good books for kids that get kids wanted to read. And one of the things that really set him apart, and this was even showing up in his notes in his 1949 lecture, is he took those kids absolutely seriously. He said they're the hardest audience to write for. You can't fool them. You know, it's not like if you're writing for adults in a novel, you know, you can use these literary tricks and these, you know, beautiful gyrations. Kids will see right through you. They are the toughest audience ever to write for. And he often said that a one page of a children's book was like a chapter of an actual novel. So that's I think that's one of the things that makes his work even to this day still so great is he he takes his audience absolutely seriously, looking them right in the eye and never down to them. You know, we I mentioned at the beginning that you've written about these like three really, really big figures in um, imagination, at least in the U.S., um, Jim Henson and George Lucas and now uh, Dr. Seuss. When you look across all the work that you've done, do these feel like incredibly different people? Are there things that tie them together? Uh, like, I just wonder when you kind of step back from years and years of looking mm-hmm at people who have something in common, but a lot of things that are different. What do you see? Well, I think one of the through lines that ties the three of them together is that absolute commitment to their to their work, to the product. Jim Henson is one of these guys that, you know, knew, knew what, he went into a project like the Dark Crystal or Labyrinth and knew absolutely what it was going to look like when it was done, even if no one else understood that, and was going to work to make that happen. George Lucas, who, you know, was trying to explain Star Wars very badly, in fact, uh, to, you know, Hollywood, trying to get money for this project that nobody could visualize the way he could. He knew how it should look. And if they weren't going to give him the resources he needed for special effects, well, he would build those himself. So, you know, these two guys had eye on the ball. And Dr. Seuss is like that as well. You know, he's the guy who's going to take, you know, 
two years to work on a book because one of the lines is too long and it might have rhymed, but it didn't look good on the page. I mean, that's that's a real sort of perfectionist mentality. So I think the three of them, one thing they all really have in common is, again, that absolute commitment to the work. And then the other thing, and we touched on a little bit, is they all really controlled their product for merchandising. They didn't want people putting junk out based on their products. All three of them really, really policed that very, very well. And again, as I said, Dr. Seuss was frustrating people because he wouldn't let them merchandise his art and his books. And that says something really interesting about money, too, because these are obviously all people who made plenty of money uh, from what they did. But maybe at every it sounds like at every turn in the road, they didn't maximize that money, especially if you're holding back a book that, you know, honestly, people would buy if that one line wasn't perfect. But it doesn't matter because to him it matters. And. Now, if there's a million dollars out there to be made, whatever, it can wait. It's like not the most important thing. Right. And he even had a deal going with Random House where he wanted just a salary of a certain amount every year. And then, I mean, he put the rest of his money, you know, in holding or something. Um, But, you know, the money to him was just sort of a means to an end. So he could do all these things. And it was, you know, he could then cash in some stuff and build his house and do great things like that. But, but to him, it was the most secondary. And Jim Henson sort of felt that way. And George Lucas did in a way. But then he also took all his money and invested it right back in himself, right back in his company and building, you know, Skywalker and Lucasfilm. So so for all of them, money was always kind of the means to the end and not really ever really the end in itself. Brian J. Jones is author of the book Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theater Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you. What a joy. The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. I sat there with Sally. We sat there, we too. And I said how I wish we had something to do. Too Too wet. wet to go out and too cold to play ball. So we sat in the house. We did nothing at all. So we... So... All we could do do was to sit, 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 sit. What you're hearing right now is the voices of kids whose parents work around our office, kids who learn to read with the help of Dr. Seuss. On our website, we'll have more about the wonderful world of Theodore Geisel, including a New Yorker profile of him from 1960. We looked and he saw him, the cat in the hat. And then he said to us, why... Do you sit there like that? I know it is wet and the sun is not sunny, but we can have lots of good fun that is funny. Thanks to our whole staff who worked on this show, and of course, to the kids who read Cat in the Hat for us. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. I will show them to you, and your mother will not mind at all if I do. PRI. Public Radio International.